0: Mount, we continue by taking our copy of God's Word, we'll now worship by way of our study and consideration of the Word. Turn to Romans 12, Romans 12, that's where we are, you are visiting with us, a guest today, again welcome you and invite you to take God's Word, which you see in front of you, the rack in front of you, if you don't have your copy or your own copy with you. In Romans 12th chapter, that's where we are this morning. Sir Christopher Wren was one of the finest architects England has ever produced. Maybe one of the most gifted architects, quite frankly, that the world has ever known. Sir Christopher Wren. His Mental blueprints are all over England, some 50-plus church buildings that he designed. After the great fire of 1666 in London, after that fire destroyed a number of those buildings, much of the city, Wren was commissioned to rebuild the prized church in central London. Maybe you know of it, St. Paul's Cathedral. That's Sir Christopher Wren's creation. This was a project that would not take... Months or even a few years, but almost half a century to complete. A generational construction. This build spanned time. In fact, many of the builders that started the construction would not see it completed. And many that completed it were not there when the first bricks were laid. Very impressive. Under his superintendence, a massive team of builders was assembled, And so in 1669, construction was underway. One day, as it is recorded, in 1671, that's two years in, and that is 40 years before it would be completed, one day in that second year of construction, Wren toured the early building grounds. Most of the men would not have known him. Remember, it was a very different age back there. They wouldn't have known him to look at him at all, only in name. But he passed by, he toured the grounds, and he passed by a number of workmen that were engaged in stonework. Three of them in particular, he passed by. And of each, as he passed by them, he asked them this one simple question. He said, what are you doing? So he passed by the first one, and the first one turned to him and gave this answer, I am cutting stone. He walked further, and as he passed on the second, turned to him and said, I'm earning three shillings and sixpence a day. Finally, he made it to the third one, who straightened up, turned around, looked at him and said, I am helping Sir Christopher Wren build this great cathedral. The first two, did you catch it, had a very benign view of their own work. You see that? For them, it was what? A job an earning, an occupation. Their labor was viewed as how it affected themselves. Do you see that? And a third, if you notice, looked at his labor through what? Through Sir Christopher Wren, the architect, the head. That's who defined his work. That worker understood that his labor was bigger than himself and his labor served a greater purpose than himself. That stonemason understood the big picture. And one imagines, picture it with me, we don't know, but one imagines that third stoneworker, I'm pretty sure his work still would stand out at St. Paul's today. Probably the finest stonework one could ever see. That third stoneworker understood that his chisel was one of many. A chisel that needed trowel men and trowel men or brick men that gave way to painters and so on. All members and parts of the grand plan of the designer, Christopher Wren. That is the perspective of not only a skillful bricklayer in England, but it's the same perspective foundational to our passage this morning. Let's consider it to begin. Look down with me as we continue our study in verse 3 of Romans 12. It says this For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them prophecy in proportion to our faith, of service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, may you take this text and give us eyes to see it, to understand it, press it deep within us, Lord, so we can heed the call to let us use what you have given to us as members of one body in Christ, we pray in Christ's name. No Christian, beloved, exists on her own. Every Christian lives for another Christian who lives for Christ. We, though many, are one body, individually members one of another. Look at that, very clear in our text. And that is because every Christian is placed in the body of the master architect. And just like St. Paul's Cathedral was not just built by single stone workers... The body of Christ is not of one-dimensional composition. Single members. No, not at all. Rather, all in the body of Christ. All members with a role like that bricklayer in a body depending on each other, yes. But more, we've been given those roles by the one whose body we serve. This is key. It is God who equips us. It is God who fits us to be placed, presenting our bodies in community. Yes, church, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, gifted by grace. Listen, varied grace in each of us, and each with a manifestation of the Spirit, First Corinthians 12, verse 7. Now, as we begin with that, we realize there's a lot of baggage out there on what exactly it means to be Spirit-gifted Christians. Is that not true? When I consider a room of this size, I can only imagine all the experiences with dabbling in spiritual gifts and understanding and so on. I can imagine how many have looked into it and well intended. I can imagine how many of you have filled out spiritual gift inventories and surveys and so on. You know, the endless questions where you spend more time figuring out a scale than actually serving. Well, there's lots there that we need to consider. And we want to recognize this first and foremost. Much of it is sincere, but it's misguided. And we want to see why that is so, according to God's word. So that's number one. Sincere, but it's misguided. Number two, when we think about spiritual gifts, there is the self-defined. What did our text say? It's God, and it's the grace given by him. But so much of the spiritual gift movement, and it's such a modern movement, by the way, is self-defined. So you know how this goes. Gifts claimed by what one likes to do. Gifts claimed by what one has done. That's not what the Bible says. Spiritual gift discernment is. Or three, and I believe many of us know this, there's the sinister or the sensual. The stuff of the showy gifts. This is the strange fire. We know all of those. What we want to do this morning is not only to align our thinking on spiritual giftedness with God's word, but we want to follow exactly as Paul has laid out for us. That's what we want to do. And I do believe, beloved, if we pay close attention to this text, and we simply follow Paul verse by verse, that's what we're going to do, a lot of spiritual gift confusion, you will see, will be cleared up. Just a simple treatment of a clear text case in point look with me again at our passage you might be drawn immediately depending on your ilk to verses 6 to 8 i hope he skips the prelude stuff and just get to the gifts i want to learn about those individual gifts that's where the gifts are right that's where the meat but before that comes verses 3 4 and 5 and within those preceding verses lie a couple of grace enablements they're vital Whatever it is we endeavor to do with spiritual gifts won't amount to much if we don't understand the foundation ball lays. Let's look at those in turn. First and foremost, we see this in verse 3, our first point, grace-enabled assessment. Grace-enabled assessment. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul says, look at it again, for by the grace given to me. For by the grace given to me. God-given grace. Paul always recognized that this was fundamental to identity. And it still is true for us today. And before any gifting or service or ministry could be conceived for Paul, listen, Grace needed to be received and recognized. And and listen again and again. Let's go to Paul elsewhere. Turn to Ephesians 3. This is the template that Paul lays down before he gets to ministry service or individual gifting, whatever that may be. Ephesians 3, verse 2, he gives us a chapter here where he's going to unpack the ministry of the gospel within the church. Let's just read a few select verses in this chapter. Verse 1 and 2. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of what? God's grace that was given to me for you. So what does Paul not say? I had a really good business plan and ministry plan to come to you Gentiles. right? God's grace was given to me so that I could come to you. Verse 7. Of this gospel, Paul continues, I was made a minister according to what? A crafty plan, no, the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And if we didn't catch that, look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see that? Paul sets the foundation, and he's then going to go into what has been given to the church, back to Romans. This is God's grace given, so we see it elsewhere, we see it here, the foundation. Paul says, by the grace given to me. Paul recognized this foundation, and the question is, as we begin this morning, do we? In your excitement to want to get to individual gifts, do you recognize first and foremost the grace given to you and to us, foundational to our identity, before we get to parts While we may feel ready to jump into a gift list, rubbing our palms with grace uh, reminders for sure, we need grace foundations. And Paul says here, not yet. There's still more foundations needed. Verse 3 says, for by the grace given to me, look at this, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Think with sober judgment. Very important here as we continue. To everyone in the church, look at it, Paul says, to everyone to think rightly about yourself. Notice right away, Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Do you see that? And what you also should notice, he does not say along with that, and or also do not think of yourself more lowly. Do you see that? He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say it, and the Bible never says that, by the way. Why? Because we don't. That's not our problem, is it? No. What the Bible does say repeatedly and does command over and over and over is that our problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. You see that? The Bible never says, think more lowly of yourself in that sense, or that you don't think too lowly of yourselves, I'm sorry. Our problem is that we do think too highly, and we need to humble ourselves. And listen, let's just look at God's people. We're not, again, concerned with the malady of all humanity in Adam. We're concerned with what plagues us in the church. In the church. That was the problem, by the way, of all people. Of all people, Jesus' disciples, listen to Luke 22, 24. Listen to this. A dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the what? The greatest. Can you imagine that conversation with disciples of Jesus Christ? I'm great. No, I'm great. I'm greater. No, I'm the best. That was a disciple problem. Listen, it was also a Corinthian problem. Listen to the letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, 6, and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, this is to the Corinthian brothers, that you may learn by us, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. See that? For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Disciple problem, Corinthian problem. It's also a Galatian problem. Listen to Galatians six three. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. For the Galatians. What about to the church in Philippi? That was a good church, right? A good church, that Philippian church. And what did he say to them? Paul said this in chapter 2, verse 3. He said this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. There it is. Beloved, these are passages and commands. Can we make sure we're clear on this? Not to the unbelieving arrogant. Not to the egomaniacs or the narcissistic, right? Not at all. These are commands to who? God's people. God's people. And see it then, folks, please. Our problem and all of humanity's problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. We do not, contrary to worldly wisdom, we do not have self-esteem problems. We don't. Believe you me, we don't. We have a self-love problem. A self focus problem, a self fixation problem. That's our problem. We can be mistaken and think we're down on ourselves, but let me at least give you this exhibit A. Almost every time I speak to someone in that state that says, I just have a low view of themselves, guess who is the expert on themselves? That person. They are a master of themselves. The issue is they have mastered themselves, and they need to bring that view down. Oftentimes, it can be masquerading, and I know you know this. What about the faux humility, the false humility? That wickedness that lurks in all of us, right? I need to present low, even though I'm internally high. You're good at this. James Denny said this, mark this, I quote, To himself, every man is, in a sense, the most important person in the world and it always needs much grace to see what other people are and to keep a sense of moral proportion, end quote. Is that not true? That's what's in all of us, right? The orbit of one. And we would reluctantly say amen. So the point is here, we must first, do you see it now? Before we get to gifts, we need to assess ourselves rightly by the grace given. We must do this, beloved, because our bent and flesh simply don't do this certainly before salvation, this was off the charts literally with high self-estimates. But now by the mercies of God, listen, you can, Christian, by the grace given to you, to us, church, we're able to assess ourselves appropriately. Look at verse 3, with sober judgment. That's a clear mind, a mind in Christ now, no longer in Adam. We know, believer, that We are who we are by the grace of God alone. We know that, don't we? The apostle is charging us, church, to not overestimate ourselves, which we are so prone to do. Instead, he says, think of yourselves soberly. In fact, coming off verses 1 and 2, his charge is simply this. Think with the renewed mind. Your mind's no longer in Adam, it's in Christ. Now think with that mind. And listen, a mind renewed and enabled by grace can finally stop overestimating and thinking so highly of oneself. That's it. That is what it is to be transformed by mind renewal. A mind renewed and enabled by grace can now assess self, verse 3, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And look at this with me, saints. This is not assessing based on others' faith or others' service or others' life at all, right? That's not what it is. That's not what the text says. This is not assessing based on your own subjective sense of where you should be, either. This is assessment or measure that is grace-enabled, to recognize grace given, and to recognize our grace-enabled assignment because of the gospel of God. Now listen, Paul is going to expand and elaborate on this in verses 6 through 8, but for now... Let us simply see that grace-enabled assessment is based on what God gives. Clear mind. That's it. Grace-enabled assessment of ourselves is by the measure of faith. You see that? In one sense, it's a common faith because it has a common object, Christ. But it's also a faith that has a variety of assignments and bodies and gifts. And before Paul unpacks variety and giftedness... He ensures that we understand our unity and our connectivity. It's just so vital. See, we're still not there yet. So we look at point two, grace-enabled membership, verses four and five. Paul still has foundations to lay down. Do you see where we go I? Before parachuting into gifts, he says you need to know this, verse three, verse four and five. You need to know grace-enabled assessment and grace-enabled membership. Let's continue in verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The point of these verses is simply this, that we are one body, unified with many members, diversified. We are not islands, we are parts of one main land. That is one picture, but the exact picture that Paul gives here and elsewhere is the human body. I would submit to you, it is a brilliant, brilliant illustration of our connectivity. It's very fitting. Think of your own body makeup. You have a variety of parts in your body, but they all make up one body, don't they? And more than just having attached parts that all look different, there's more. Paul says, the members of our body do not all have the same function. And is that not true of our body? Our body, and its parts, right? It's the exact same thing, and it's so good. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll see this, of course, put up in 3D for us by the apostle in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. I'll just start reading. Just grab this. It's going to sound so familiar to what we are covering. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Do you see that? He springs off our physical bodies to the body of Christ. 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now before we get carried on with oneness and unity, which is good and important, he goes to verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. Well, what does that mean? 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Notice he's saying whatever is declared by a part with respect to the body doesn't make it any less so. 16. And if the air should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Same thing, no matter what the part. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them. Notice who arranges them. Each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And go back to Romans, but consider that picture in your mind now. The point is exactly the same here in Romans 12. Paul using the same illustration or leveraging off it, exact same. And it's this that we are not just parts of one body or parts with different functions of one body but that we are parts, members that depend on one another in one body. That's the point Paul is making. And this is made clear at the end of verse 5. Look at it. We are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is grace-enabled membership. Our default setting as sons and daughters of Adam is what? What's our default? Island and autonomy. In fact, we're so comfortable... With our rogueness and our individuality, sometimes we don't even see it, do we? We get comfortable in that fleshly remnant of autonomy. That's our default setting. In Adam, listen, listen, we may enjoy in Adam the company of others from time to time, but that is special occasion and selection, is it not? In Adam, our membership is to ourself alone, Again, beloved, this is often not so bombastic as the withdrawing rebel that says, I'm done. This is a subtle disease that can infect us all, the rebel. And it's so subtle that the pursuit of independence and autonomy, even in Christ, has so many expressions. I'm not going to itemize them all. They're obvious if you pay attention. What we need to note is how this Adamic membership of one How that membership of one thinking has crept into the professed church. We just need to consider a few things. Firstly, it's independence that professes Christ outwardly or physically, but then lives a life that's only around the body of Christ for an hour and a half each week. That's autonomy. That's not the body of Christ. Secondly, it's independence that likes, here's a flavor, the parachurch buffet. That's body life, of course. The church alongside, para-church, right? I'm doing Christ's work, not in community, perish the thought, but I'm doing God's work. Maybe an extra hour and a half each week, doing spiritual work. Here it is completely disconnected to a body, right? All claiming to be in the body of Christ. Or Thirdly, it's independence that wants to live an external life with the body and completely disconnected to what's going on in the inside with what's going on in the outside. This particular individual maybe is here more than an hour or more than a day each week, but it inwardly finds refuge as an island. Externally hitched on the mainland, internally an island. You know this autonomy. It has many, many, many different expressions, but some of the more classic are, I can handle it, or no one needs to know. That's not grace-enabled membership. Listen, that's self-absorption. That's what that is. It's not grace-enabled membership. It recognizes the connectivity of the body. Saints. Westmount saints. Members one of another. We are not islands, are we? Right? We are blessedly connected to each other. I shared with the group downstairs this morning, talking to Jen and Julie after Pat's surgery and you know what they said time and again? Ladies, you know this. We felt the prayers and the upholding of the saints. Now tell me something. Is that not interconnectivity? None of us were in PRHC at that table, but they felt it. No one was there as they had sleepless nights, but they felt it because we're interconnected. But please, let's not make this being about this physical building. This is life together, grace-enabled membership. Sunday to Sunday, which, by the way, includes Monday to Saturday. It's the gospel of God, and in the gospel of God, by the mercy of God, according to the grace of God, this is blessed. And in that we are one body in Christ, we all, many, with varied function, yet one body. We are members one of another, interdependent, varied, but unified. That, again, is grace-enabled membership, by the way. You're still like, when are we going to get to the gifts in 6 to 8? We cannot understand the gifts in 9 to 21, or not necessarily the gifts, the life instructions in 9 to 21 without even understanding this either. So this is fundamental, our grace-enabled membership, and it begs pause. But we will continue, because we must as we march through this passage. And before we get to 9 to 21, of course, now we arrive at verses 6 to 8, and our third point, grace-enabled giftedness. Look with me at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them of prophecy in proportion to our faith, of service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Contrary to parachute attempts into this passage to do a spiritual gift study, That is not the intention of this passage. And I pray if you've been here tracking with Romans and us, you know that. Paul's point is not to pause and say, I'm going to give you an inventory now of all the gifts. Or I'm going to catalog all the gifts. That's not the point. This is why it's important to read the letter rightly. For one, let's just consider a few things overall. The so-called gifts that we would see in passages overlap, don't they? In fact, you get repetition of gifts in different passages. And at times, gifts are renamed in other passages. That's because when Paul mentions spiritual gifts in the New Testament, he's not attempting to be exhaustive, but to be representative. That's just so important. It's not an exhaustive list, a representative list. In other words, he gives it for examples. Not to say, here's every one and get the chart. It's just for an example. This is what it could be like. Secondly, when a New Testament writer brings up a representative list of gifts, It's always with a greater general purpose. It's not to say, let's be specific on these and pull out the chart and so on. In Corinthians, for the Corinthians, it was to correct. They were using their giftedness wrongly. That's why he takes them through the gifts that they're using wrongly. In Ephesus, it was to unify. The Jew-Gentile group together say, now you can be unified, and, and each is given a gift to come together, not apart. In 1 Peter, they are given to stir perseverance. You have gifts. Use them even in perseverance or even in struggle. Persevere. Additionally, when Paul or Peter brings up giftedness, the point is not what they are. The point, Westmount, every time the New Testament writer brings them up is this. They're brought up, and here's the point. Use them. Use your giftedness. Not to create a badge or a label, but to use your giftedness. That's the point. And look at verse 6 as we confirm that. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's the point. That's simply the point. That's the header of this section. Use your gifts. Not that you are a teacher or a giver, but however your giftedness is, that you would use them. And on that, let us pause and pull back for a moment to consider some important prerequisites. And we're just going to stick to this text. There's many things I could say this morning, but just let's look at them in this text that inform our thinking on spiritual gifting rightly. Beloved, listen, what are we learning in Romans? We are in a body. We're not in a box, right? We're in a body. We love our labels. We, we, the comfort in the badge and the label. But those things are not helpful, are they, in body life? They're just not helpful. Oversimplifying or over-defining gifts can cause confusion, frustration, and listen, I've seen it over and over again, discouragement. Not to mention a false sense of ability or passivity, right? With a wrong sense of gifts. As such, the groundwork is necessary, here, Paul gives to understand what the Bible teaches. So number one, let's look at verse three again. The gifting of the Holy Spirit pertains to and was within each and every believer. Do you see that? Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to who? Everyone among you. Do you see that? Very necessary step back for a moment. Beloved, there is no such thing as a Christian not endowed with spiritual gifting. We just need to kill that. Two, this is about giftedness. Not about what specific gift one has. Look at the end of verse 3. Each according to the measure of faith. That God has assigned. You see what he's saying there? Westmont, our own experience, listen, testifies to the truth in that verse. The gifts are not mutually exclusive. Right? They're not meant, so we put them like scout badges on a sash. We do not possess gifts, but look, a unique giftedness composition by way of the Holy Spirit. And less like you are blue or you are red or you are green, you've seen those. The Holy Spirit gifting and imprinting is like an artist's palette, or even more. I think this is a helpful illustration. You know when you go to Home Depot, right, or you go to the paint shop, like a paint chip. And you look on the paint can, and what does it say? 285 rose, right, 13 green, that's it. That particular mix and composition, that ratio, what's more and what's mixed into that, so that's one thing are the God-given skills, abilities, and talents you each have. I was thinking of this as Luke. You read Exodus this morning, right? These two men are given skill and ability. I was thinking to myself, wow, that blows up the New Testament gift charts, right? In one sense, that's spirit giftedness as well, isn't it? So we are this wonderful, blessed, robust combination of gifts, abilities, talents, and so on. And as such, here, here is where... The point is, there are no two Christians alike. By God's design, listen, that's not just a beautiful thought. It's also the antidote to another principle of giftedness that we must grasp this morning. Three, and it's this. Christian, you and you alone can fulfill the role in the body God has for you. That's it. I understand many of you will not like that this morning. But it is true. There's only one of you. One part. That's it. And God has a role for every one of his members. Look at verse 4. The members do not all have the same function. Do you see that in verse 4? The members do not all have the same function. Sure, someone else might have mercy or wisdom and fill a role and fill a part. But only you can fulfill it with the exact mix. That paint chip, that right color of spirit disbursements given to you. God has made you and each one of us uniquely For a place in his son's body. And the question is, you know what it is. Are you filling it? Are you fulfilling it? That's the question this morning. We want to take away, are you fulfilling it? Opposite but tied to that is another giftedness consideration. For saints, we have giftedness, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us. So much here. Let's not cripple ourselves with looking horizontally or looking at others. Yes, it's true. So-and-so can do that. And I know you've been there. I've been too. You've always wanted to do what they do. And why can't you do that? And they do it so well. Isn't that just messy? Horizontally, just always looking around and coveting the gifts that other people have. Not only is that sinful, it's not productive. God has gifted you, beloved. You. I'm looking at each one of you. Embrace it with the things that you cannot do and the things you can do. By his hand, he knit you together. Listen, sometimes it is true. There are things you cannot do. Or listen, can I say this to you? I pray it's liberating. There are some things you'll never be able to do. And I don't care what Hollywood says. No matter how much you put your mind to it, you'll never be able to do it. And listen to me. It's okay. Because God designed it, right? And that's okay. And when you put those... and Listen, I see those faces, Right? Listen, when God builds in such a blessed mechanism, rather than resisting, we say, praise God, because that helps my humility. Because I will never, and I must be, versus this false voice in the spirit of the age that says you can be whatever you want to be. No, Westmount members, we say we want to be what God designed us to be, right? That's what we cry. We stop comparing and trying to be something we're not. Instead, we assess ourselves with sober judgment and recognize our membership. And why is this important? Because this assessment, as we think about the spirit of the age and the voices, this assessment always involves the input of others. And you don't just want anyone. And you certainly don't just want yourself, right? Remember, we have a skewed view of ourselves. That's why we need the body. Let me just give you two examples. I remember a few years ago talking to a gentleman told me he was very convinced of a particular gift that he had. He's in a particular community at the time. And I remember as others would cross orbits, it was very clear that no one was affirming that gift. Right? No, this is important. But he was very, very sure that he had it because he felt it. But the body, hear me, didn't confirm it. Now, as far as I know, he continues to this day thinking he has a gift, that the body part, the other body parts are saying, you don't have it, brother, you, you just don't. I also remember a few years ago, another brother, where body parts recognize there's something in this particular one, and maybe we should have him teach. I remember going to this particular brother and saying, "I, you think you should do it, and he wanted no part of it. No part of it at all. Left to himself, listen to me, he wouldn't be teaching. To this very day, he's teaching and he's loving it. You see why you need the body and you can't depend on yourself? The positive and the negative. Beloved, let's not miss this. And finally, let's not miss the domain of our giftedness. Look at verse 5. In Christ. Westmount Christ embodies all these gifts and more and perfectly that we'll see. In Adam, in our fallenness, we may have raw DNA of something. You see this all the time in the world. The CEO that can lead really well, they have ability to do that. It's in their raw Adamic DNA, for sure. But fullness and fulfillment of all that one ought to do and what God has gifted us to do is only found where? In what domain? Or in whose domain? Christ, right? Now, with that foundation laid, finally, we can rightly take in the representations here. There's no need to linger, right? And you see now the point is not specificity. The point is use the gifts you've been given. Paul says in verse 6, look at it. Having gifts, what? Use them. So if prophecy in proportion to our faith, Not that last part is key here, in proportion to our faith, and the faith of this day is not like Old Testament faith or first century faith. In Rome, in Corinth, in a fledgling early church, God used prophecy to establish. With a closed canon, and established church prophecy is just simply not necessary now. But that gift will return in the last days, and it will be needed in both false and true stripes. See Revelation. By the way, on prophecy, we see here just because God gives a gift to the church age, at a particular time, doesn't mean it's part of giftedness and necessary for every part of the age. See this with healing and tongues. And also, by the way, notice that prophecy is distinct from teaching. We see that even in this passage. They're not the same thing. And they're distinct from preaching. Prophecy is not preaching. That's a different word in the New Testament. Both of those, and here's the other thing, unlike true prophecy, can be wrong. See our brother Apollos in Acts 18. If service, look at verse 7, in our serving. We see here why this is not about specifics. Why? Why? You imagine the Christian says, well, I'm not made to serve. All Christians are called to serve, right? All of them. And no one's to check out of serving because they feel they're not gifted to do it. It is true. Some are more driven by it. I'm part of a, a group here through the week that's blessed to see Marilyn come in here during the week when we have a special event. If you have not seen Marilyn light up serving you, you're missing something. This woman is endowed with this service serving you it's a treasure let's maybe thank her today we're called to follow christ as he told us and what did christ say mark 10 mark this verse 42 jesus called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them remember our default to think highly of ourselves verse 43 but it shall not be so among you disciples Whoever would be great among you, what's greatness in the kingdom? You must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus as Me, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who teaches, we continue in his teaching. And verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Teaching is imparting knowledge. Exhortation is strong encouragement to do it. Live it. And like service, all of us have some degree of each of these or our call to do it. See Hebrews 5, verse 12. Yet for some in our midst, we like to teach or encourage that much more because it's part of our spirit palette. Next, the one who contributes in generosity. We understand that there are some among us who are generous. Now listen, this is not giving to receive back or giving to earn points or favor. This is contributing to the needs of the saints. Here it is, because they are moved by the Spirit, through no ulterior or secondary motive. They just want to give. And why? Because they recognize there's a need in the body, and their compulsion as part of their palate is to give. The one who leads with zeal. See it? The word there means to set before or be in front. That's the picture of leading. And again, I have to keep pointing this out. We come to a word that blows up our boxes, blows up our inventory labels, because think of every spiritual man you know. All men are called to lead themselves, their marriages, their families, in churches. One thinks of him filling out an inventory where he scores low on leadership. What might that do to his Christian walk and what God calls him to do in all spheres? And what of ladies leading other ladies? What about ladies leading in their household, leading the little ones day to day, as husband provides? We could go on and on. And note the manner of Paul here. What he says, leading with zeal. The idea there is diligence and with haste. And it is true. And you see this: those that lead and gifted to do it with vigor, with haste. And then the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Once more, this should be familiar as we close this passage. All Christians are called to have mercy. Right? Nobody checks out of a mercy bucket. They're, well, I'm just not merciful. That's an excuse, by the way, when you hear that. As for someone else, I'm just not merciful. It is true, listen, that said, Some have a special disbursement of grace to be cheerful in their mercy. We all are called to bring mercy. Some are called, of course, in that cheerfulness to bring joy to the afflicted. And we would say that is a gift indeed, right? And a challenge to all of us with the Spirit in us. And such are just some of the manifestations of grace enabled giftedness. But we must close and leave this passage for today. And let's be reminded of how we got here. The gospel of God, as our study in Romans, has saved us. The gospel of God has placed us into the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, we are members one of another. So we're placed into an interconnected body one body, many members. And as varied members, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, we're not just to talk about grace or post about grace or itemize grace gifts, but we are to consider ourselves not too highly, but with sober right judgment. We are to recognize our membership in Christ's body and to live for one another. And we are to live according to the measure of faith, using, operative word, using our varied grace-enabled giftedness for the betterment of one another and for the glory of God. With position, place, and giftedness and order, Paul is going to take us now further into the gospel of God from verse 9 on. And that is precisely where we'll pick up next time. Bow your head with me. Father, we thank you for this journey in Romans. Thank you, Lord, that you clarify so pointedly with your word where we are in error, where we think wrongly. Lord, help us as we follow this text not to think highly of ourselves, not to think of ourselves as islands or autonomous, but to be reminded that we are connected members one of another and that we have gifts, varied gifts of grace from you that we must use. O God, help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.